Welcome, welcome my friends to the Beggars and Brawlers podcast. This is episode number 19, recorded Monday, the 17th of May, 2021. And today I've got another preview chapter for you from my upcoming audiobook, Witch of Wealth and Ruin, plus a little talk on why I wrote this story in the first place. So, without further ado, I give you Chapter 4 of Witch of Wealth and Ruin, Book 2 in the Tidecaller Chronicles. If you haven't read Book 1, Daughter of Flood and Fury, you might want to go back and do that to avoid the spoilers that are definitely in this chapter. And if you haven't listened to the other preview chapters, you might want to listen to those first, although this one kind of stands alone, kind of doesn't. So if you have listened to all that and you're up to date, then enjoy this chapter and I will see you at the end for some behind the scenes talk on my original inspiration for this book and how it turned out so differently than I planned. Four. The guards drag me down to the lift and after reinforcements pile out, shame burns in me that they weren't even needed. They shove me in efficiently tying my hands as the contraption lurches. We descend into darkness, with only a single lantern above us to light the eerie metal tube passing on all sides. I should keep my shame iced, should stick with my breathing and stay sharp here, but the shock is too much, the disappointment, the utter letdown. I was so close. I had the book in my hands, my father's book, the answers I needed to get Gaxna back, to do something instead of feeling so flooding powerless like I have since I lost her. My shoulders shake and I realize I'm crying, and for a long minute there's nothing I can do about it. I'm trapped inside a metal tube with two guards I have no chance of defeating, apparently being taken to fight to the death for what I've done, and all I can think about is Gaxna and my father and the world, but especially Gaxna locked up in a pit under the temple because of me. It would have been better if we'd never met, which only makes me cry all the harder because it's the last thing I would wish for. The lift lurches to a halt, and I hear a voice call from outside. All safe in the tube? Safe and prisoner in tow, the taller guard Jenelin yells. It's not much, but it's enough to stop my tears. I take a deep, shuddering breath and look around making out a dim set of stairs in the lamplight. Where are you taking me? I ask. No answer. These guards have just listened to my weeping all the way down the tube, and they won't even give me an answer. Slop holes. I seize onto that anger and ice the rest. This is not how a monastic is supposed to act, not the ideal state for responding to a desperate situation, but it's the best I can do right now. Fine, I growl. I don't need you to talk anyway. I slam myself into the nearer one, pushing him into the wall and bringing me into contact with his bare arm. He shoves me off like a newborn kitten, but in the brief instant of contact I read my answer through our touch. An arena, filled with gladiators wearing belts of coins, littered with the blood and bodies of the fallen. Roaring crowds line the seats above, reveling in the slaughter. Entertainment. I am to die for entertainment. Flood that. If I'm going to die, I'll do it now, on my own terms. A crevice of light opens above, another guard opening the heavy gate. 
I sprint towards him, kicking off the wall to land a spinning heel into his neck. He stumbles back, choking, and I break out into the tower grounds, thirty paces to the wall. Something heavy slams into me, pinning me to the ground, but I'm not done yet. I slam my head back, hitting someone hard enough to see stars and earning a grunt. I try again, the rest of me immobile, but a thick palm shoves my face into the gravel. Gentlemen, he calls, not even sounding winded. Get the tea. A minute later, they force something foul into my mouth, and the guard holds me there till my head gets fuzzy and my limbs go numb. Good, Gentlemen says, his voice echoing, and they lift my limp body into a cart. The sun goes dim. I wake to cool stone and a pinch on the cheek. Wake up, girl, a weathered woman says, pinching me again. Wake up. They're almost done out there and you're next. Shouts sound and I look to the side, through a barred gate to where a gang of Omani men surround a solitary fighter, his comrades lying in the dirt around him. It's the arena I saw in the guard's mind. Floods. I can't. Thornbark should be wearing off by now, she slurs in Daranese. You had a good sleep there. Stand up, it'll help. Here. She thrusts a staff at me, and something about the worn feel of the wood, like the practice staves we used in the temple, clears the last of the fog from my brain. I suck in a breath, taking quick stock. I am locked in here with this woman, the gate behind her barred. If what she says is true, in a few moments I'm going to have to go out there and fight. No time for questions, and I can't trust her to tell the truth anyway. But her thoughts will. I seize her wrist. The keys. How do I get out? A broad man appears in her thoughts, laden with wealth and holding a large circle of keys. No point attacking this old woman, then. Penewa, her name is. Penewa, are they going to kill me? A roar goes up from the crowd, muddling her reply, and I glance back to see the Bomani men raising their clubs in victory. Attendants run into the ring, dragging away the bodies, and a sick feeling rises in my throat. I have never killed before, and I don't want to do it now, not this way. I was trained to fight for justice, not just survival. But if I let myself die, what happens to Gaxna? To Saray? A guard rattles the gate behind us, and Penewa nods. It's your time. Be careful. I run out. I have no idea what they're throwing me up against. Saray criers are full of stories of the horrors of the Duran gladiator pits. But I'm at least going to choose my ground. The arena is covered in ankle-deep sand, ringed by sandstone walls twenty paces high, with steep rows of seats rising beyond them. There's no way I'm climbing out of here, and no high ground to speak of. At least they gave me a staff. It's only then that I realize I'm dressed in a Therakin's robes, or some strange mockery of them. My hand flies to my chest, where I keep my father's letter. It's gone. And that is the deepest insult of all. Above me a giant voice rings out, calling something about a new jay witch versus the Dale menace. My match, then. I spin in a slow circle. There are gates set into the base of the wall every five paces or so, like the one I came from. I'm disturbed to see most of them full, muscled and scarred fighters watching me with boredom or malice. 
I ice a rising dread and keep circling, holding my breath steady. I've only fought one Salomdale man, and it wasn't much of a fight, but I have no idea what to expect here. The clarity that comes with deep breathing tells me the dread is not for my own life. I should have lost it many times over by now. But for the idea of killing a stranger here, in this made-up environment, for these people's entertainment. Give me Yeolat. Give me Nerimes. Slops, give me one of the guards from the tower, and I'll fight. But this solitary man who steps onto the sands, wearing his own bizarre mockery of the clinging Dale garb? He's no enemy of mine. Something relaxes inside me, the same part that drove me to attack the guards back at the tower. If I'm going to die, I'll die on my own terms. Die a person Gaxna and my father would be proud of. And that means not killing an innocent person, no matter what the cost is. The Dale fighter trots towards me, and I'm surprised to see he actually has the milky eyes of the Dale. I got the sense from the last battle that, Though the fighters were wearing Bamani armor, most of them were actually Daranese. This lanky man, he has the Dale height too, is the real thing. He limps, though he makes an effort to hide it, and that just cements my resolve. He raises his weapon, a ridiculous two-bladed spear I doubt came from the Dale, and yells something in a foreign tongue as he gets close. I'm not fooled. Every Dale I've met spoke Samujayan. You're no enemy of mine, I say, grounding my staff in the sand. Let us not fight for their pleasure. We have to, he says, milky eyes confident. His right hand is missing two fingers. Trust me, fight. He swings with the strange spear, and I step out of its arc. No. The crowd boos, and he swings again. Don't worry, you're slated to win this one. Win? I ice the surprise that comes up, again dodging his blow, my mind spinning through the possibilities. Is this some ploy to put me off my guard? We're not fighting to the death? Not if you play along, he growls, jabbing the spear at me dead on. You don't have any coins, right? So fight. I step aside to more booze. The announcer's voice booms across the sands, something about a healer not wanting to fight. There's a threat implied in his voice, but I've already made up my mind. Still, I don't understand everything here, and I was trained from a young age that knowledge can undo many disadvantages. Coins? What do coins have to do with this? That checks him for a moment. Are you new to the city too? Look, I'll explain everything later. For now, just fight. Trust me. That's something I've never been good at. I dodge his attack without raising my staff. He wears only a few copper ravas around his neck, so I can likely take him if it comes to that. No. Sweat beads on his forehead as he again attacks, and the boos come louder when I roll under his blade and come up untouched. I grin. To hell with them. To hell with the crowd and the amaranth in a city that thinks that I should have to fight for their entertainment because I tried to take back what is rightfully mine. To hell with all of them. This is not the fight they came to see, but maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's something I can use. I grip the butt of my staff and hurl it out of the ring to a shocked silence, then outrage from above. The Dale man curses in his own tongue, and the jab that comes at me is real this time, fast enough I'm forced to jump to avoid it. 
That's better, he says. Keep at it. Just a couple more. He swings and I dodge. And you can take me down. Flood that. Take yourself down. Don't you get it, he growls, circling right and jabbing in again with the spear. His posture communicates it well ahead of time, and I sidestep. We have to put on a show, or they really will kill us. Look, just knock me around a couple of times, then I'll lie down in the sand and we're done. Lie down in the sand? I ask. That's all you have to do? And I'll raise my hand, he says, the sign that I'm finished. Great. I drop to the sand. The arena explodes in booze. I don't care. I raise my hand, keeping an eye on the Dale to make sure I haven't judged him wrong and he might actually try for a killing stroke. Instead, I see him forcing a smile and doing an awkward victory dance. I smile, remembering the Amaranth's last words. Now we'll see just what kind of fighters you Jayans really are. What kind of fighter am I? I mutter to the sky. The kind that can't be pushed around. Plus, I have an ally in Duran, and a simple battle here wouldn't have made news. Hopefully this, a rare Ujayan fighter in the arena, and then a total refusal to fight, will reach her ears. Rough hands grab me and drag me from the sands. If she realizes who that Ujayan fighter was, hopefully she can do something to get me out. It's a thin hope, I know, but it's better than nothing. The guard I read in the tower didn't make up the blood or the bodies in his memory. This place is real. They drag me back to the cell and toss me in, then swing the gate closed. I allow myself a moment to lay there, letting out a deep, shuddering breath. A throat clears behind me. I leap to my feet, spinning into downward cuts the tide, only to lose it in shock. Hiana? My father's ally stands calmly in the narrow cell, wrapped dress immaculate and face composed, like she regularly fills in for the arena guards. Alethea, she agrees, stacked necklaces of coins bending the air with vitality, though not so strongly as the amaranth. That was quite a fight. What are you doing here? Are you here to get me out? She chuckles at this. Get you out? I'm the one who put you in here. All right, so I hope you enjoyed that. Talking about my inspiration for this book, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that magic in the world of the Tidecaller Chronicles is based around social beliefs, that whatever a society holds dearest or truest is where their magic gets seeped into somehow. So in book one, in Saray, we saw that that was around gender because magic is split between the two and people see them as, as black and white differences and the... The two magical orders of monks and witches are enemies, um, and because that divide feels so concrete to them, their their magic gets in there, and that's also the reason that Alethea was such an outcast, because she's a girl with a man's magic. Um, so in this book, we're leaving Saray for the most part, and going to Duran, which has a very different culture and different belief system, and these are the traitors of the world. These are the people who are obsessed with getting rich and money and wealth. So, of course, that's where their social belief goes. And we've already seen that it gives people long lives like Kiana, and it gives people incredible powers like the vital guards that were in the tower in Chapter 3. Um, 
And so that was kind of in the same way that I talked about finding the cool thing that I base my settings around. I also try to find a cool thing or concept that I, I base the story around. And here it was definitely that concept of money becoming magical. And then I thought about what are all the things it could do for you and why would people want it. Um, and then the next step in thinking about the magic is how can it be used and how can it go wrong and what divides does it cause? So this one, this book was fun to write because it plays on a divide that a lot of us already experience in our society between those who have a lot of money and those who don't. And now that divide is is stretched out and the, the conflict between them increased because those with money live long lives and they're beautiful and powerful and those without it are the opposite. So the, my first thought, of course, was that wow, those people on the bottom should like rise up and start a revolution and Alethea can be at the head of that, um, <laughs> which I think is a pretty tried and true and perhaps a little worn out trope in fantasy because we're always imagining these fairly extreme worlds and then we think that, well, somebody's been marginalized and so we'll need a revolution to overthrow the bad thing that we designed into the setting. And uh, I wrote that in my first book, Beggar's Rebellion, if you've read that, and you can find it all over in fantasy. It's always about revolution. Um, and I think that there's still good stories to be told around that framework, but the more that I wrote this, the more that it felt like I didn't need that big of a story and that maybe it isn't that realistic that, you know, she could convince an entire society to abandon their beliefs so quickly. So there's still a piece of that that stayed in here, but the story shifted a lot from a revolution against the system to her just finding her own way within it. And we see that in this chapter where they're like, you have to fight. And she's like, you know what? <laughs> if all I have to do is lay down and concede, if that's how you're going to fake lose this, I'll just do that now. Because I feel like at the core of Alethea's character is this notion that she will live on her own terms or die trying. Like that's her mantra. V. Schwab talks about always having your characters have a mantra. And that's Alethea's. And um, we come back to it a lot in this book because her her values get tested so hard in a way they didn't really in book one. There was kind of more like her emotions getting tested or her goals in life. So the story shifted and not just that external story of revolution against a failed system, but also the internal story. Because I thought that in the same way that in book one, Alethea was dealing with understanding her own gender in the context of a society that cared about it so much. It made sense that here she would deal with wealth and greed in the context of a society that held it up or held wealth up at least as the highest good. But as I wrote it, that conflict didn't feel very authentic to her character. She isn't someone that's inherently very greedy, perhaps because she's not from this society. And so as the outside story shifted, the internal one did as well. And it's still related to and caused by money and greed, but more connected to the fact that uh, well, I can't tell you that because of spoilers. <laughs> Let's just say that it's connected back to her family and her history more directly. Um, and I think that the, the internal journey she ends up going on in here is a lot more authentic to her as a character than, than one that I would have sort of pushed on her about greed and wealth. Um, although she still does end up scoring some points against the society on that one in the end and still really struggles with it for other reasons that I think are going to come out next chapter or maybe you'll have to actually read the book because i think they're in chapter six so anyways um there's a lot of good stuff there and it always amazes me um how much my stories change in the telling of them when i realize that my thoughts about what this would be are not what it is or what it would be at its best and 
yeah, as a writer, I'm just learning I have to be flexible with that. I can't stick to the plan because I'll end up having kind of a stiff cardboardy book instead of one that that follows the character. And I think that's what we want the most is characters that we love and to see how they deal with these crazy things that we throw at them. So anyways, that's a little story on the inspiration. I have a story to tell like that for every book that I've written, at least since I started learning to be flexible like that. But I will leave more details for next time. I'm not sure what I'm going to talk about, but I do think I'll put up one more preview chapter and hopefully by then we'll have an audiobook too. So that will be cool. Of course, in the meantime, you can read the book. It's out in paperback and ebook. There will be links to that in the show notes. Otherwise, I'll see you for the next one. Hope this podcast finds you well and in the company of good books. I'll be back with more soon. Till then, read on. For more information on Levi Jacobs and his books, including the award-winning Tide Collar Chronicles, please visit www.levijacobs.com. Or for a free audiobook, only available to podcast listeners, go to www.levijacobs.com slash free. Thanks for listening, and read on. Read on.